Well, this morning we are in our series, uh, our third week in our four-week series going through the book of Jonah. And uh, my name is David, and I serve here at Trinity as a pastor. It's my privilege to do so, and it's wonderful to see you all here this morning. You know, one of the most beloved New York Yankee players of all time is a man named Yogi Berra. Now, Yogi Berra is a Hall of Fame catcher who played mostly in the 40s and the 50s, so I didn't see him play, but everything I've heard, and by all all accounts, Yogi Berra was a great baseball player. Uh, He made the all-star team 18 times, and he won, or is part of a team that won 10 world championships, which is just unbelievable, 10 world championships. He was a great baseball player, but if you know anything about Yogi Berra, you know this, his abilities as a baseball player, as good as they were, have long since been eclipsed by the hilariously odd things he was known for saying, and they would call them yogiisms because they were so weird, and he said this one time when they were asking him about baseball, he said, baseball is 90% mental, and the other half is physical. One time he was trying to console somebody on the other team that was his friend that they had just beaten. He said to him, hey, you would have won if we hadn't beaten you. (laughs) One time he was out to eat with his teammates and he said, you better cut that pizza into four pieces. I'm not hungry enough to eat six. (laughs) And then one of my favorites by him is he was talking about a specific restaurant in New York City and he said, no one goes there anymore. It's always too crowded. No one goes there anymore. It's always too crowded. It's, a, it's an oxymoron, right, that statement, an oxymoron. An oxymoron is uh, where you put some words together that kind of contradict each other. They're, they're incongruous. Uh, they don't work together. Like uh, some of the well-known oxymorons are like when people say jumble shrimp or deafening silence, clearly confused, or tasty vegetables. Oxymorons, oxymorons. Well, this morning, as we look at Jonah chapter 3, We're going to learn two things that are true about this God that we serve that at first will seem like oxymoron. It'll seem like an oxymoron when we say him. We're going to learn two things. We're going to learn that he is a God who is relentless, but we're also going to learn that he is a God who is relenting. So he is the relentless God, and he is the relenting God. And it sounds like an oxymoron, but it's not, and they are both true. And when we can grasp both of these truths, we can just begin to understand, just get a little taste of how great God's love is is for us. So here's what I want to do this morning, a little different. First, I want to read through Jonah chapter 3. I think it's only 10, 11 verses. We're going to read through sort of a verse or two at a time. I want to make some observations about this chapter, and then I'll unpack these two truths of God being the relentless God and the relenting God. So let's start in Jonah chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. It says this, then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, arise, Go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. Now, I want you to notice this, that this is the second time that God sends his word to Jonah. The first time was back in chapter 1, when God said to Jonah, arise and go and bring this message to the people of Nineveh. And Jonah said, no thanks, I don't want to, and he ran in the opposite direction. Now, prophets, and Jonah was a prophet, prophets basically had one job, and their job was to speak for God. When God said, you should say this, they had to speak it. Simplest job description imaginable. One thing they had to do. And Jonah doesn't want to do it. He runs the other way. Next week in chapter 4, which I think might be the most important chapter of the entire book, by the way, we're going to learn why he ran. So make sure you're back for that. So the second time the word comes to Jonah, 
in two chapters and three nights in the belly of the fish later, his response is very different. Let's look at verse three. It says, so Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now, we think that the journey from where Jonah was to Nineveh was a journey of about 550 miles. Nowadays, we could do that in a day easily in a vehicle, but back then, that's not how they traveled, of course. They would travel in caravans. They wouldn't travel alone because it was dangerous to do so. They would sort of, Jonah would have linked up with another group of travelers, and on average, back then, they traveled about 25 miles a day. So he's going 555 miles at about 25 miles a day, so it took him about a month to get to Nineveh. Every step of the way, I'm sure he's thinking, it would have been a lot easier if I'd just gone the first time. And then it says that Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days journey in breadth. Now, this is the second time in these first three verses that Nineveh is called a great city. And we don't really know why it says that. It could be speaking of the size of the city. It could be speaking of the people in the city. It could be speaking of the significance of the city. But what we do learn is this, that this city and its people, for whatever reason, they matter to God. This is a great city. And it says that it was three days' journey in breadth. Now, that's not actually how long it took. Some people think, well, was it, was it take three days to walk around the city? Did it take three days to walk from one side of the city to the other side of the city? And that's not the case. Commentators don't really agree, but this is what we know about Nineveh. It was either eight miles around or it was eight miles through. In either way, it doesn't take you three days to walk eight miles. You should be able to walk eight miles in less than three hours. And so what does it mean when it says it was three days journey in breadth? This is what we think it means. It took him three days to complete his mission. Three days to go everywhere that he needed to go to speak. Now he was going to preach and proclaim God's message and he needed to do so at lots of different locations. In Nineveh, there would have been dozens of entrances, dozens of gates, there would have been temples, there would have been key public gathering places. And so Jonah would have gone one at a time to these different places and stood up and declared the same message everywhere he went because there was at least 120,000 people, at least 120,000 people lived in Nineveh. And so it took Jonah three days to do what God called him to do. Verse four, it says, Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, I want you to listen to his sermon, yet 40 days in Nineveh shall be overthrown. Yet 40 days in Nineveh shall be overthrown. I was mowing the lawn yesterday and I was doing some math and I was trying to figure out approximately how many sermons have I listened to in my life? I'm a pastor's kid. I went to Bible school, so my number's maybe a little bit higher than yours, but I did the math, and I, this is just, a, obviously, this is just a guess, guesstimate, but I've at least heard over 3,000 sermons in my life, and then I thought, well, how many sermons have I preached, and so I did that math, too, and I think I've probably preached about 1,200 messages in my life in some environment, in some context. I, I, when I travel and when I speak in other places around the country, often I go in to train people on preaching. In fact, this past Thursday, I did a local training for local pastors on preaching. And I've even written and created a resource, a little booklet that has been given away and sold for how do you put a sermon together, okay? So I say all that not to brag about myself. I say that to say I I, I know a little bit about sermons, and I just want to give you my opinion. This is one of the worst sermons I've ever heard or seen in my life. One of the worst. Where's the introduction? Where's the funny opening story? Where's the application? Where's the good news? Right? Where is all this? And so you look at this message, and this message is two things. It is brief, and it's threatening. 
I know most of you would be glad for my messages to be the first one, but not the second one. Brief and threatening. This is not a well-constructed evangelistic message. Here's who Jonah is in this story, and here's what he's doing. Jonah is a prophet who is delivering a message from God. That's what he's doing here. He's not preaching a full, thought-out, well-put-together message. He's just declaring the word that God gave him. In fact, in the original Hebrew, his message is only five words long. There's an important rule, by the way, when we interpret Old Testament stories, events, and the actions of characters. Because you might look at this and go, well, if it worked for Jonah, it should work for me. So give me a bullhorn, uh, give me a corner in the city, and let me just yell at people saying, yet 40 days in Syracuse will be overthrown. Because it worked for Jonah, right? It's got to work for me. Well, here's a really important, really important rule of interpretation of Scripture. This is going to help you a lot, especially with the Old Testament. Many things in the Old Testament are descriptive but not prescriptive. You've heard me say that before. Descriptive, but not prescriptive. In other words, they accurately describe what happened, but they are not prescribing for you or me what we should do in every given situation. And here's why. Because if it was prescriptive more so than descriptive, then we wouldn't actually need to listen to the Spirit of God today. We would just go copy all the things that are written in Scripture. But the same Spirit that spoke to Jonah wants to speak to you. And so this, this, this sermon here is not something that we should necessarily mimic or do again. However, when we look at this message, the sermon, 40 days in Nineveh shall be overthrown, there is a really important truth here for us to learn even today, thousands of years later, and it's this. The gospel isn't good news. It isn't really good news until we understand the bad news, right? The gospel isn't really good news until we understand the bad news. And the bad news is not just about spending an eternity apart from God, although that's very bad news. It's also about lives lived here and now that lack strength, meaning, purpose, security, and hope. How many of you realize that this past week with some tragedies, celebrities taking their own lives, it's this painful reminder that like the things that we think are going to secure our, our hearts and are going to fill our lives with meaning and purpose, they, they can't do that for us. So the bad news is, is that a life apart from Christ is always going to lead us lacking and wanting more. And I, I, I'm sensitive to the fact that in both of those cases, there were mental issues and other things going on. But the truth is, is that in all of our lives, when we look outside of Christ for things that are only found in him, it's bad news. It's bad news. And so The important truth here is that the gospel is not good news, or it's certainly not the good news that it should be until we understand and believe the bad news. Now, before we go to the next verse and look at their response, I want to point a couple things out that are going to help us understand the rest of the story. Number one, prophecy. This is a prophet coming and speaking, so this is prophecy. Prophecy would not have been unfamiliar to the people in Nineveh. The Assyrians actually were very familiar with prophecy. Now, most of their prophecy was propaganda. It was basically backing the king's actions and decisions and policies so the king would pay off a prophet and the prophet would stand up and prophesy on behalf of the king so that people would think that God had spoken. But the Assyrians were familiar with prophecy, so they weren't weirded out when Jonah started prophesying. Secondly, they would not have been bothered by the idea of another God speaking because they were polytheists. They believed in many gods. They weren't monotheists who believed in one God. They were polytheists. So when Jonah said, I have a message from a God, they wouldn't have turned away because they believed that other gods could speak. And the other thing that wouldn't have bothered them was that he was a stranger from another land. 
It didn't matter. In fact, it probably actually strengthened his message because they would have thought, why would you come that far if it wasn't a God telling you to do so? Why would someone travel this far unless sent by a God? Okay, so let's look what happens in verse five. Jonah spends three days running around saying Nineveh is going to be overthrown. Verse five, it says, the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and they put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. At this point, we have to ask the question, why did they believe? Wasn't a great sermon. Why did they believe? I want to give you one possible reason, one probable reason, and one definite, certain reason, okay? Let's start with possible. One possible reason is this. It's very possible that Jonah actually said more than what's recorded there. Some commentators feel very strongly that he did so. And one of the arguments that he did so was three days is an awful long time to go around preaching a five-second sermon. So if he was only standing up and saying something for five seconds and then moving on, three days is an awful long time. He surely must have said a little more. And it's not, um, it's not the responsibility, the task, or even the tradition of uh, old narratives to give us all the details. Like the, the stories that we read today in modern style of writing are very detailed. They don't leave details out. But back then, it was not about details. It was about leaving an impression on the heart of the listener. So it wouldn't have been inconsistent for them not to include all of Jonah's sermon. So some people would say, Jonah must have said more than what we have in the actual text. However, and I tend to agree that he probably said a little more. However, he certainly didn't say much more, and here's why. We'll see later that their response, although they repent, their response indicates they still don't understand who this God is. They still haven't heard the whole news of who God is. Okay, so that's the possible reason. Here's the probable reason. They probably believed because there were other things happening in their world that were preparing their hearts to hear, believe, and receive Jonah's message. I want you, one of the major themes, we talked about this last week, one of the major themes in the book of Jonah is the sovereignty of God. God appoints things. He sends his word. He sends the wind. He sends the storm. He sends the fish. He makes the fish lose his lunch and vomit up Jonah. And so what we're learning about God is that God can work in anything and through anything. And what many people believe happened here is that God worked in and through even the superstitions of the Assyrians. The Assyrians believed very strongly in something called omens. It's still a term that maybe you hear every now and then. Something's a good omen or a bad omen. You've heard that before? Omens were observations made in the natural world that they believed were related to what the gods were doing in the supernatural world. So they would see things in nature or in the natural world, and they would say, that's a good omen or that's a bad omen. And we have our own superstitions today, right, about broken mirrors and walking under ladders and black cats and that sort of stuff. And we talked about Yogi Berra earlier. Baseball players are well known for having some of the most remarkable superstitions about the way that they prepare for their games or what they do once they get on the field. And that's probably what happened here. Now, here's some examples of the sort of omens that they would look for back in this time. Every day they would sacrifice animals. It was part of their religion. But when they would open up the animal they would always examine carefully the entrails of the animal. And what they were looking for, this is going to sound weird, but what they were looking for was the configuration of the organs inside the animals. So the way in which the kidney or the liver were positioned, they would look at that, and for them, it was either a good omen or a bad omen. Other examples were they would pay attention to the behavior of animals in nature. 
and they would, or the flight pattern of birds, or even they look up at the stars and the planets and the movement of heavenly bodies. And so they have all these different omens. And so it's probable that a run of unfavorable omens prior to Jonah's prophecy caused the people to more readily accept what he was saying. So when Jonah showed up and said, 40 days and you'll be overthrown, it's very probable that in the days, weeks, months leading up to Jonah showing up, they were seeing all these things through their omens. And God sovereignly was using even their superstitions to prepare their hearts to receive Jonah's message. Okay, so possibly he said more, probably these omens, but here's certainty. Here's the definite reason why they believed. The main reason was this, because it was God's word spoken at God's time by God's servant. That is the main reason why they believed, because it was God's word spoken at God's time by God's servant, and because as as Jonah learned in chapter two, salvation belongs to the Lord. And this is what it means. And I I think for some of you, this will be helpful. And some of you, this might even comfort you as you're trying to tell other people about your faith and you're praying for family members and friends and coworkers that are far from God. I want you to hear this because ultimately, salvation is not the result of your words, although God will use your words. It's not the result of having all the best arguments laid out, although there's need for that. And it's not the result of preaching alone. None of those things alone lead to salvation. It's not even the result of life circumstances alone. So there are people who in the middle of bad life circumstances turn to God, but it's not just because of the life circumstances. It always, salvation always requires the spirit of God, the Holy Spirit to be at work. And nobody turns to the Father and no one calls out to Jesus except by the Holy Spirit, working, drawing the hearts of, drawing the hearts of people that are far from him. And so you might get frustrated thinking, I don't know the right things to say to that person. I don't know how to share my faith with them. I don't know, they ask me questions and I get stumped. And I just want to encourage you that it's not the right words, it's not the right arguments, it's not any of that. Although study, show yourself approved, is not any of that. Ultimately, here's what we pray. God, pray that your spirit would be at work in their heart, drawing them, changing them. Show them their need for you and show them that, they are the, that you are the one that they need. Okay, let's finish the story. Beginning in verse, or continuing in verse six, it says, the word reached the king of Nineveh. He was probably more of a, like a, he's probably actually more of a governor, but the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh. Here's his proclamation. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. He's calling for a fast. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his or her hands. Verse nine, who knows? Maybe God God may return and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. I wanna point a couple things out before we read the last verse of the chapter. Fasting was not a normal response for the Assyrians. They almost never fasted. Instead, they would do like rituals and incantations to try to appease the gods. Fasting was very much the way that the people of God, the Israelites, responded. And so this whole idea of the Assyrians fasting was them actually, Jonah must have taught them something how how possibly to respond, or maybe they had observed at some point how the Israelites respond, because the Assyrians are basically adopting an Israelite practice here of fasting and wearing sackcloth. It was not consistent with them. So they knew something here. So they fast, 
They call out. They cease from their violence. And what I find interesting is that they still at this point clearly don't understand who Yahweh is because they don't even understand the chance for mercy. Did you notice that in verse 9? The king's like, who knows? Maybe. So Jonah didn't give him the good news. Jonah didn't say, hey, if you turn away, he's going he's gonna to pour his mercy out on you. They just turned away. He's, they say, who knows? So they don't understand who he is yet. And the other reason we know they don't understand who he is yet is they, they involve their animals in this process as if the animals and the beasts somehow may have offended God. In verse 10, it's, the story finishes this way. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Jonah 3. Now, this is where this book should end. This should really be the end of it. The only reason Jonah 4 even exists is because Jonah has as much wickedness in his heart as the Ninevites do, and we'll see that next week. So what happens is they repent, and God relents. And here's the two things we learn about God. I said them earlier, and it sounds like an oxymoron, but it's true. The relentless God is also the relenting God. The relentless God is the relenting God. Let's talk first about how he is the relentless God. In Jonah 3, 1, it said that the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. How many of you are glad that God's word came to you more than once in your life? Anybody glad that God's word, that his gospel came to you not just the first time, not just the second time, not the third time, the fourth time? I don't know how many times, but sometimes it feels like I'm still responding to his gospel every single day. Every day he's coming to us. And here's what we learn about our relentless God. God has a determination to save you. He has a desire to save you. He has a passion and a mission to save individuals and to form a people. And God is relentless in finding a way to save people. God is relentlessly at work in your life. He pursued you in your darkness to bring you into light. He's pursuing you even now as you follow and serve him to be conformed more into the image of his son. He is relentless. He will not leave you be. And for some of us, we're like, God, take a break for a second. Let me be. Like, let me, I'm kind of happy with who I am right now. And God is saying, I accept you because of Jesus, but I'm relentlessly at work on you, in you, and through you. He's a relentless God who is working. Here's what it means. This is the big story of scripture that we mess everything up, but God redeems everything. We ruin everything, but God restores everything. We wander off. We go our own way, we make our own path, we get lost, but God pursues us, chases us, finds us, and rescues us. We forget to do what we're supposed to do. We forget to keep our promises, but God never forgets a single promise he's made to you. He remembers every word he's ever spoken to you, and his promises are yes and amen. We break relationship with him, but God is a God of reconciliation. He's reconciling us to himself through the person and work of Jesus Christ. And when we see that this word came to Jonah a second time, I want some of you to hear this this morning, that God is not just a God of the second chance. God is the God of another chance. Is that good? God's not just the God of a second chance. God is the God of another chance. And he's always relentlessly pursuing us. Now let's ask this question. Why Nineveh? Why did God relentlessly chase them for salvation? Why did God go after these wicked Assyrians? Were they calling out to him? We don't believe so. Were they cleaning up their act? No. Were they doing their best? No. Well, you might say, well, yes, they did repent. But remember, this story began way before they repented. Way before it. Months before, God looked at the Ninevites and said, Jonah, I want to have mercy on them. 
I want to pour my mercy out on them and not my wrath out on them. And then, of course, the story begins with Jonah running, and then he goes. So when they repented, it might have felt like they did something to earn their salvation, but you got to realize that for the longest time, God had been pursuing them and chose them. Why did he choose them? He chose them for one simple reason, because he's relentless God, and he desires for all people to be saved. In fact, that's how Paul says it. Paul in 1 Timothy 2, 4 says that God desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. I want you to hear that phrase, God desires all people. Think of the person in your life that you think, never them. They'll never turn to God. They're either way too happy with their life or they're way too lost in their misery. But one or the other, on either extreme, you might think that person will never turn to God. But God desires that that person be saved. God desires that all people be saved. Peter, the other uh, significant voice in the early church, said this in 2 Peter 3.9, that the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness. Seems slow to us sometimes, but, not, but he's not slow. He is patient towards you. He's not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. This is our relentless God. And Jesus tells three powerful back-to-back-to-back stories in Luke chapter 15 about the relentless nature of God's love. And the first one is a shepherd who has a 100 sheep and he comes back at night and he puts them all into the pen and he does a quick head count and there's only 99. Some of us would be like, 99% still an A+. plus. I'll take it. Like, that's fine. You know, that's good. I got to st- I got to eat a little less meat anyway. So that 99 is fine. And no, what does he do? He secures the 99 and he goes after the one. Why? What does it teach us? That there's value in the one. You were the one. Your family members are the one. Your neighbors are the one. Your coworkers are the one. And God is pursuing after them. Then he goes to another little parable where he talks about a woman who has 10 coins in her house. And she can't find one of the coins. And so what does she do? She turns the house upside down, looking for it. And in this story, we see the extremes to which God will go to have those who belong to him. And then the, more, the most well-known story he ends with, which is the story of the lost sons, the younger brother who runs, the older brother who stays, both of them really lost. And it shows us here that God will endure rejection. He will endure his love being rejected so that he can uh, pursue and love those that are his. And then we see the rejoicing when one returns. Now, before we get to our second and last point here, let me just ask you to reflect in your seat for a second. Answer these questions. Can you look back at your life and see the way God has pursued you? Can you look back at your life and say, and see God's relentless pursuit of you? He wouldn't let you go. He wouldn't, in, in, in difficult moments, in dark days, bad choices, terrible decisions, he was still full speed coming for you, relentlessly pursuing you. Are you sensing it now? Some of you maybe in this room, you say, I don't know if I have a relationship with God, but are you sensing in this moment that he's pursuing you? He loves you. He wants to have a relationship with you. He wants you to know him. You may think that you've been pursuing God, but what you're going to find when it's all said and done is he's been pursuing you. You think you've been chasing him. He's been coming after you. And then the last thing I want you to reflect before we go to our last point is this. Who in your life is God saying, join me in pursuing them? Who is that? Don't grow weary in pursuing them. Don't give up. Keep loving that person. Keep serving that person. Keep inviting that person. Keep showing them the love of God. He's a relentless God, so we should be a relentless people. And then the other thing we learn about God here is that he is the relenting 
God. When the story ends, it says that when God saw what they did and they turned from their evil way, the words right here in verse 10, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them. He did not do it. This was God's great plan. This is not God sort of being reactive and changing his mind. This is God's sovereign plan to say, I'm going to save these people. And so he used this word from Jonah to call them to a point of repentance, but he doesn't pour out his wrath on them. He doesn't pour out his punishment on them. He doesn't pour out the destruction on them. They were not overthrown in 40 days. Now, I just want to acknowledge the fact that some people, uh, and this is fair, I think, are bothered by the idea of a God who is wrathful a God who is angry, a God who punishes those. That, that, that can bother our modern sensibilities, and it actually can seem like, oh, here we go, this is another oxymoron, a loving, wrathful God. No, thank you. Don't want it. They contradict each other. But I, just, I think you'll understand it if I, if I share it this way. Great wrath is not the absence of great love. Great wrath is really the other side of the coin of great love. They don't contradict each other. They don't eliminate each other. They actually require each other. And here's what I mean. Anytime I, I read something in the paper or see something on the news about something terrible happening to a child or an injury or a death or whatever, it's, it's heartbreaking. All of us are heartbroken by things that happen to children for sure, right? But it's a little different if it's my daughter, Right? It's a little different. I hope that doesn't make me a bad person. I think we all can relate to that, though. When it's your daughter, when it's, when it's your son, when it's your family member, it's a, it's a little bit different. And, and your reaction is what? It's a little bit stronger. Why? Because you love that person more. Because you, you know them. Great love always results in great wrath when the object of our love is being injured, hurt, under threat, or hurting him or herself, right? It's not less loving for me to get more upset when something terrible happens to one of my kids or they're doing something terrible themselves. It's actually an extension of my love. And so what this means is that if God has infinite love, then he also has infinite wrath. But it's not the sort of wrath that you and I have where we lose our temper and we wish later that we hadn't expressed it that way. It It is a purposeful, just, righteous wrath delivered to the very things that he loves the most. In other words, the stronger your love, the greater your wrath when you see the object of your love being hurt. And so we see here that God has his wrath that he's going to pour out because the Assyrians are sinning against him and hurting his people. But when they repent, he relents. God relents from sending his punishment here. But you know what? Years later, Nineveh actually was destroyed. Nineveh eventually was destroyed. Why? Because all their sort of changes that they said they were going to make, no more violence, we're going to repent, they couldn't keep it up. They couldn't, it couldn't last. In verse 8, the king said, let's turn from our evil ways and let's turn from our violence. But then when you get to the book of Nahum, who's another prophet later, in Nahum 3.19, Nahum's talking about Nineveh, and he asks this hypothetical, theoretical question. He says, who, talking about Nineveh, who has not felt your endless cruelty? So in Jonah, they say, no more cruelty, no more wickedness, no more violence. But not, much, not many years down the road, in Nahum chapter 3, God ends up declaring final destruction and punishment. 
the Assyrians were, they were incredibly violent. They were notorious for amputating hands and feet, gouging eyes, skinning, and impaling their captives. And so this closing rhetorical question, Nahum says, who has not felt your endless cruelty? And we read this sort of stuff and we hear this thing about amputations and gouging. We're like, what is wrong with these people? So wicked. Thank God I'm not like them. Thank God I'm not like them. But Jesus comes along and says, well, hold on. You may have not murdered anybody, but if you hate someone in your heart, it's the same, it's the same rebellion. It's the same wickedness. It's the same sin. It's the same refusal to accept the love of this relentless God. We are the exact same as the Ninevites. We are the same as his people, and we cannot be good enough. We cannot not make ourselves good enough. If any of you try to sustain your goodness for a long time, it's exhausting. It's difficult. We can't be good enough. We can't make ourselves good enough. We cannot sustain our righteousness for a perfectly holy God. And so we're left with this question at the end of Jonah and Nahum. How can a just, righteous God, how can he still be just and not punish sin? How can a just God relent from punishing our rebellion? And our, he can't just wash his hands of it. He can't just say, I'll let it go. No big deal. This one, don't worry about it. Why? Because then he would not be what? Just. A just judge has to administer the sentence and the punishment. So the question that we get to by the end of the Old Testament is this. Here's the tension. How will God ever destroy sin and not destroy the sinners? How can he do it? How could God destroy the sin in our hearts and not destroy us? And of course, the answer is Jesus. Jesus at the cross, the just and the justifier, where his mercy and his wrath were poured out. In verse 6, it said that word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, and he removed his robe, and he covered himself in sackcloth, and he sat in ashes. This week in my studies, I learned something that I never knew before, and it's this. In Assyria, there was a tradition. There was a practice, and it was this. Whenever an omen or a prophecy suggested that the king was in danger, which is exactly what Jonah says here, whenever a prophecy or an omen suggested the king was in danger, what they would do is they would find a common person, an everyday person, and they would point them the substitute king. And they would take this nobody, they would take this person, and they would put them in the royal robes, and they would sit them on the throne, and this person would live that life of the king, because their thinking was, if the king's going to die, maybe we can trick the gods into killing this substitute king instead of killing the real king. And the real king would go and do sort of rites of purification and different rituals like he does here. And then eventually, after enough time passed that they felt safe, they would replace the kings. But before they replaced the kings, they would always kill the substitute king because they thought, just in case, just in case we didn't wait long enough, let's sort of appease the gods, let's fulfill the prophecy, let's let the omens play out, and we'll kill this substitute king in the place of the king so the king can sit back on his throne. When I read this, you know, I thought, this is the anti-gospel. This is the commoner being forced to take the place of the king, to live in the king's place and to die in the king's place to save the king. But in the gospel, we see that Jesus, the king, King Jesus comes down and he takes the commoner's place 
every person's place. And he lives in our place. And he dies in our place. And he wraps himself in flesh. And he wraps himself in the human experience. And he wraps himself in sadness and sickness and pain and sorrow. And he dies in our place. Why? So we can live. So we can live. Jesus received the wrath that we deserve so that we could receive the welcome that only he deserves. I'll say that again. Jesus received on the cross the wrath that you and I deserve so that we could receive the welcome of the Father that only he deserves. So how do we respond? We spend our lives saying thank you. We spend our lives serving him. We spend our lives serving each other. And we spend our lives telling everyone and anyone the good news of Jesus Christ. Let's pray together this morning. Holy Spirit, I ask that you would work in our hearts this morning. Seal your truth deep within our hearts. Let us be those who don't just hear the word, but let us be those who act and do and change by your grace and in the power of your spirit. If you're here this morning and you need to respond to this good news, I want to lead us in a prayer. We can all pray this prayer together. Let's pray together. We're going to call out to God and say, I trust in you and I trust in Jesus. Let's pray this prayer together. Dear God, I thank you for Jesus. My substitute. He lived the life I should have lived. He died the death I should have died. And your spirit rose him from the grave so that I might have life both here and now and forever. I turn from all the other things I pursue and I turn to you. Thank you for pursuing me, for loving me, for saving me. We love you, God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.